Welcome to Inside Sponsorship, the show that provides sponsorship professionals with advice, insights and news so they can maximise their commercial programmes and achieve best practice. Welcome everyone to episode 30 of Inside Sponsorship. I'm your host Daniel Loyston and I want to kick off this episode with a shout out to Mike Keach who I would describe as the man about town when it comes to sponsorship in New Zealand. So hi Mike. Mike's doing some great stuff with bringing the industry together in New Zealand uh, with regular meetups and support groups and things like that and he reached out to me the other week to make some suggestions for guests on the show. Then he went ahead and started making some introductions. So thanks heaps, Mike. It's greatly appreciated. And it's great when people like you get in contact and let us know that they enjoy the podcast firstly, and then either suggest guests or topics for us to cover. And one of those introductions was to Mike Wooten at ASB. And Mike will be on the show in the next few episodes. So we look forward to welcoming him. So thanks again, Mike. I'll buy you a beer next time I'm in New Zealand. In this episode, Jason Cornell joins us to talk about his sponsorship experiences across Asia at Hong Kong Rugby, Hong Kong Jockey Club and the Hong Kong Film Festival, and now his new role as CEO of Alice Springs Turf Club. But before Jason joins us, Mark and I sit down to delve into and add some clarity around the age-old debate of the difference between return on investment and return on objectives in your sponsorships and which is the actual source of happiness for outcomes for your sponsors. Here's Mark. Mark Thompson, welcome to, I think it's episode 30. 30? Yeah, wow. I'm, I'm recording this before I record all the other intros and bits and pieces, but I think it's 30. Hey, um, on that, hmm. I missed episode 20 where I was promised cake. No, I delivered on the cake. You the weren't UK. here to eat it. I was in the UK. So What's your point? When's, ne- <laughs> when's the next milestone episode so I can 50. have some cake? 50? 50. That's not going to be till the end of the year. Well, it's... Uh, it's just the way it goes. Maybe 40. Maybe episode 40 you can ha- have a coffee for me. Okay. When I come in. But today you're here to talk about the age-old conversation around return on investment, return on objective, what's the difference, which comes first, which is more important. Because return on investment, you've just welcomed another baby to the family. Yes. How does that work for return on investment? Well, um, I'll tell you a funny story. When, when the um, Pay for it for the rest of your life. <laughs> Little baby girl named Evie. So when Evie was born, the uh, the paediatrician... I've got some sound effects. <laughs> paediatrician called me over and uh, he said, oh, see this cream on her back? Um, grab some of that and rub it into your face and hands. I went, why? He goes, oh, it's good for you. And I said, <laughs> I said, okay, that's a bit weird. And he goes, no, nah, I'm just joking. It's the most expensive moisturizer you'll ever, you'll ever buy. That, that thing there will cost you a million dollars. Wow. Pass. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm good with dry skin, thanks, Doc. Okay, so we are here to talk about, as I said, that age-old sort of conversation that pops up all the time and then sometimes we see pockets where there's a lot of conversation around it. Yeah, Everyone's got an opinion. We think ours is the most important. But return on investment versus return on objective – how do they work together? What comes first? You're going to solve it all here for us today, aren't you? <laughs> Look, where, where this has come from was over the course of you know a couple of years, we've we've really tried to we try and break down into really simple snippets sponsorship, right? And and we and we sort of talked about ROI and ROO and what's more important and how you deliver that and how you can focus on each individual element. But you know when it really comes down to it, um, it, it is a lot more complicated 
sometimes most it's of the time. It's not in silos, really, is no, it? Even correct. though we try and break it down. Uh, correct. So what this sort of blog was about is is trying to turn it into a bit of a cycle of how it all feeds together. And really, when you when you really break it down to simplify it again, when once you pull it together, it that the whole cycle starts and ends with ROI. You know, there's not many sponsors out there that aren't going to come on board um, if they're not presented ROI opportunity. Well, they might come on board, but they're just donations or supporters. Correct. Well, that's different. That's not sponsorship, right? Correct. So that's, that's, you know, your, your Chris Bayless is talking about fundraising and philanthropy for sport. That's that's a different conversation. Yep. Yes. So how do we, what sort of things do we need to think about it when we want to try and make that fit in a logical way? Because it's easy to have a high level meta yep. conversation, but what are some of the, the things we need to look at? Yeah, look, the, the, I mean, the, the, the questions people ask themselves are, you know, how, how can I strategically give the best service to my sponsors? Um, how can I build a process that allows me to do that? And then how do I know that I'm doing it well? So they're the three big questions that sort of come up when you talk about this with, with people. And then, so we've broken it down into four key elements. So what are the, we starting with? The first one is the return on investment vision. So, um, you know, that is where it starts with the ROI. And as I just said, not many people come on board without the vision or the promise or the prospect of getting return on their investment from a sponsorship point of view. Um, so basically, you know, that, that starts with the ability to know that your assets are going to help them deliver a tangible return on investment as a worst case scenario, um, but also then through the possibility of the partnership, the non-tangibles will come into play. Because it is part of their marketing dollars. It is, exactly right. Okay, so I've sold them a vision of yep. where we're going to go. What's the next step? Number two. So number two was then return on objectives. So the return on objectives is, you know, more of the intangible type of parts of the, the sponsorship program. So as a general um, rule, the, the tangible elements will be attributed to ROI. So that would be, you know, your tickets are worth this, your hospitality is worth this, um, your appearances and use of IP is worth this because it's been, it's valued, it's quantified, they're tangible elements. Yep. But then there's these non-tangible elements, which are how you align to objectives. So, you know, how how does this sponsorship align to your sponsorship um, and marketing, you know, objectives and portfolio and, and practice of your business? And then how can we deliver on those objectives and provide some sort of result back to you to say you've achieved your objectives through us? It's a non-tangible, it's really hard to value, but it has got a value as, as part of the whole process. Very good. All right. So we've sorted that out. We've come from the vision. We've moved through that. What do we need to do to support that? So then, you know, an internal process is is basically the what ties it together. So being able to track your return on investment and align benefits to objectives and set goals so that you can then track and report on ROO um, requ- requires good record keeping and requires good systems. You can't just fly by the seat of your pants and provide accurate records and reporting back to your partners. So, you know, in my view, the only way to put yourself in a position to do that is, um, you know, unless you've got hundreds of thousands of dollars to throw more people at it, um, you need to have really good internal processes and approaches. And it's not, you know, a lot of people we go and see have have quite good systems that are run and owned by an individual person who is the doer of the organisation. So your sponsorship coordinator or, or client manager or partnerships executive have got a nice little system that works for them. 
But in order to have a, a system that actually is resilient to change and to drive, you know, value to your partners and to, to make product, you know, create productivity inside your business, you need to have something that's sponsored by your executive and designed to help you focus your time on that ROI and ROI, not and, on your admin. And something that doesn't fall apart, crumble, fall over when that doer leaves the organisation. That's what needs to be sponsored by the executive as well because they need to own that process. But you said at the start it all comes back to ROI? Yeah, so all of it comes back to ROI because, as I said before, um, the return on investment um, promise, vision, is what attracts the partner to your organisation. Being able to provide return on objectives to for them will actually give you the best chance of return on investment because you're helping you know if their objectives are sound and their objectives are solid and then their business and sales processes internally are are leveraged to take advantage of those objectives being achieved that that will return on investment for them it's a longer cycle and it's out of your control but you know like nrma told us many years ago that, that it's it's not the brisbane broncos jobs to to get people to buy insurance it's the brisbane broncos job to deliver leads to NRMA to close those that loop, so that's their their clear objectives is is that. So if you then bring nice internal processes into play, then return on investment is then the end game. So at the end of the day, a sponsor's getting their money back through sales or value for money returns, they'll be happy. So real return on investment is a mixture of achieving the vision, which is where it starts, delivering objectives and returning on objectives, having the systems to then report back to the business that they've actually achieved an ROI. So that's why it starts and ends with ROI because you've got the vision and then you've delivered the actual. Is it fair to say that unless you take control of this process, i.e. you don't just leave it up to your sponsor to Mm. track the ROI and the ROI, if you don't take control of this process, own it, work with your sponsors, you're just a sitting duck because if you can't help prove and achieve those ROIs and ROO, when it comes time to make decisions about either renewing or cutting budgets, unless you're proving that you're providing value back to their business, like proper value, you may as well paint a target on your head. And, and, and you, you, you maybe hear those dreaded words, don't feel like you're meeting our objectives yeah. anymore. And, and to be fair, you're yep. probably dead in the water three to six months before you actually hear those words. Yeah, that's You right. have to take responsibility for it. Yeah, and, and I mean, I was having a conversation with one of our clients yesterday around reporting, which is um, going to be our next blog, but the, the, the whole conversation with her was if you're relying on these reports to drive renewal, you're too late. Mm. These reports need to drive positive sentiment as a, as the, you know, your end of year report for this sponsor is the start of your planning for next year. Mm. So this isn't it about... It should be the icing on the cake, not the cake. Exactly. You, so, can, you, you can use that if you like. <laughs> thanks, mate. <laughs> back to your... I'll leave that with you. Um, so back to your point there, you know, delivering return on investment at a level to make your partners happy um, comes through aligning sort of four key elements. So you've got... The return on investment being understood by both parties and also acknowledgement that it is achievable. So By setting goals. By setting goals. So then the objective is also being understood and benefits aligned and measured. So you're actually not only you're going, you know, we think that brand awareness and brand positioning is important, 
and then aligning signage and branding to that, but mm. actually then tracking that they are getting brand awareness and brand positioning ongoing. Um, return on objectives and reporting being reported back to sponsors so that, you know, that can be a, a leveraged to drive more value and attributed to any sales spikes because it's in your best interest to say, hey, for the game against, you know, the Sunwolves, we had a, a massive spike in the China, in the, the Japanese audience. Sake sales. Yeah, in the, well, the, the Asahi beer, yeah. right? So had a massive spike there in our Japanese audience and then suddenly Lion have a big spike in Asahi beer. That's an attributable return on investment mm. that may not have come directly from you, but it's because you've achieved your objective. And then internal systems being in place to enable reporting, measurement and delivery occur. So they're the four things that need to tie together. Very good. And as always, any you want to read through that, go through it slowly, just head to uh, Mark's blog at sponsor.net. Yep. Anything else to add? Yeah, well, I did say there were four elements to the whole process. You did. You've only counted how many? Three? Yeah, but... So well, the fourth one... I once got a D. I once at school got seven A's and a D. I got D for maths. Yeah, right. So don't judge me. So for, for the fourth element is the relationship. So if we think in our head that this whole thing is a process and a cycle that's important so you have return on investment at the top of the circle yep you have down the left hand side um you've got your return on objectives down the right hand side you have your um systems and so that's your cycle that feeds back up the top to return on investment the the listeners can't see because this is radio but mark's making a circle but he's going around the wrong way you're going anti-clockwise i'm going (laughs) anti-clockwise and then the relationship comes back to that yeah. for you. So the relationship actually circles it's not a, around. It's not a linear process where no. you start and end. It, it no. keeps feeding it keeps back feeding into back. itself. And the relationship actually cycles around the whole thing all the way and it stops at every one of those stations all the way through. Very good. Anything else? No, mate, that's it. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Jason Cornell has over 15 years leadership experience initiating, negotiating and maintaining multi-year sponsorship agreements with leading international brands. His career pinnacle has been introducing commercial sponsorships to the Hong Kong Jockey Club for the very first time in history. Through conceiving, negotiating and activating multi-year and multi-million dollar agreements with top brands such as Cathay Pacific, HSBC, Mercedes-Benz, Citibank and Audemars PK, Jason was able to establish the Cathay Pacific Hong Kong International Races, the HSBC Premier Series and the City Triple Crown, elevating the club to being one of the largest and most respected in the world. Leveraging an extensive background in sport before moving into sports management and organisational leadership positions, Jason understands exactly how to maximise the commercial benefits from sponsor partnerships, applying over a decade of expertise and a portfolio of achievements to transform revenue models and performance. Here's Jason. Jason Cornell, welcome to the show. Thanks, Daniel. We always kick off with a few easy, well, I think they're pretty easy, icebreaker questions just to sort of, you know, get it flowing and help the audience get to know you a little bit better. And the first one is if your house was burning down and you could only take one item with you, apart from your family and your pets, what would it be? I think nowadays it's normally your mobile phone. <laughs> actually, you're the first person to actually say that. <laughs> I, I thought it might be some sort of racing memorabilia or something. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, okay, then the, the, the photo of Carbine on my wall. Okay, very good. And the second icebreaker question is, what was your first ever job? Uh, my first ever job, my, my dad was uh, a milkman in a, a country town called Berry. So uh, 
I remember getting up very early in the morning and then it was actually the time period where we changed from a, a morning shift to an afternoon shift. So, yeah, I was, a, I was a milk boy from a very early age. And for those who didn't grow up in Australia, we used to, correct me if I'm wrong, drive around with a milk truck. You're probably hanging off the back and running to people's doorsteps and dropping off milk and collecting money. Collecting money, that was, that was yeah, the trustworthy. And we actually went through the change from shows you how old I am from, from bottles to, uh, to cartons. Um, and yeah, we do either collect money on a, on a daily basis or um, Fridays was actually a very interesting day because that's where you collect the accounts. So you'd, um, yeah, that you'd set up a little chip for them and they'd, they'd pay you once a week, probably when they got paid. Yeah, that's right. It always struck me as a type of job that was uh, always helped keep you fit. So um, I've given the listeners obviously a little bit of, of background to you, but can you uh, give the listeners a, a rundown on what's been your career progression to your current role? Yeah, and obviously this is sponsorship related. So I, I started off in um, finance. I used to work for a, um, a US company called Tyco. Um, uh, I suppose I did an apprenticeship with them here in Australia and then I got sent to New Zealand when we acquired four companies and sacked a lot of Kiwis and um, put, put that all together into one, uh, one company. And then I came back to Australia and they didn't really have a job for me and they said, would you like to go to China? And um, I went, yeah, sure. And um, it was in Shenzhen, just across the border from, from Hong Kong. And um, so, yeah, went there as a, a young 23-year-old and ended up spending 17 years in Hong Kong. And what sort of roles did you have? Oh, we'll get into these and ask some more in-depth questions later. But what what were some of the roles that you had when you were there? Um, so yeah, I worked worked for Tyco up till 1997. Um, then I worked in in private equity and uh, eventually made my way into the sporting and sponsorship world via the Hong Kong Rugby Union and the Hong Kong Jockey Club. Now you are the CEO of the Alice Springs Turf Club, but you've only been in the role for a few months. What was attractive to you about that role that meant that you were keen to move from Melbourne to the middle of Australia? <laughs> yeah, I've only, only been in the role two months. Um, I suppose I've always been looking for a um, where I could take over a club in its entirety. Um, I asked a little bit of advice in the racing circles beforehand. I had a very good conversation with... Uh, John Massara, who was then chairman of Racing Australia, and he said, Jason, all you need is a vehicle. Um, and also, uh, so so Alice Springs um, run 34 times a year, um, and they're their own, rather than just a racing club, it's, it's actually more running a, um, a whole racing jurisdiction. So there's actually there's actually some interesting parallels to, uh, to the Hong Kong Jockey Club in that respect, um, in that, you know, we run everything here in regards to um, all of the stables are, uh, are leased by us to the to the trainers, um, so it's really um, managing also the the total horse racing community. Also, very uniquely, we have a um, we have a yearling sale, so the whole bloodstock angle is uh, is something that I'm very interested in. Um, and probably the bigger thing was, uh, and and I'm sure I'm, I'm not going to tell any um, any stories are not going to be leaked out as such <laughs> in this podcast, but. Um, a little birdie told me that the new NT government was about to do a new wagering deal and there might be some significant prize money increases coming up into the Northern Territory and Darwin Turf Club and Alice Springs Turf Club will be the uh, two major beneficiaries of that. Very good. I'm going to ask about that in a second. What's your impressions of, 
I mean, like you said, you've only been there a couple of months. What's your impressions of how important the Alice Springs Turf Club is to the community there? Oh, it's it's, it's vital. Like horse racing, I think, um, whilst it's probably gone down a little bit in in recent years, but you know what a what a cup day means to a, a country town all around Australia. Um, so it's it's uniquely Australian. What a what a turf club, a jockey club, a racing club, what it means to the community. Um, you know, depending on how good the clubs are in regards to their membership, you know, normally you'll have the, the towns movers and shakers will be, you know, members and probably on the committees yeah. of, of, of your local racing clubs. So, no, and, and Alice Springs, um, you know, we're, we're a town, actually the, the residents here voted, um, it's actually big enough to be called a city, but they voted to keep it, a town, a town called Alice, which is, was actually quite funny. So we always, uh, from a branding perspective, we always say that it's a that Alice Springs is a town. Um, but yeah, the the, um, the 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 turf club is a um, it's a major event centre for, for for the town. Um, you know, people like to have their weddings here, have their um, you know have their have their business functions. Um, and as I said, we we race thirty four times a year, which is probably a lot more than um, than other I suppose country race clubs that would be the sort of the similar size to us. So no doubt in the first few months um, that you've spent the role, you've also spent some time looking at the sponsorship portfolio, um, and you've got some long-term partners in your portfolio. What have they been telling you are some of the reasons that they have ensured that they've been a long-term partner of the Alice Springs Turf Club? Um, yeah, most of the long-term partners, and, and really the 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 lure for them to be involved with the turf club is our cup carnival. So we race every Saturday in April and in the lead up to Cup Day, which is Monday, May first, which is a public holiday here in Alice Springs, um, and it's probably the the biggest um, uh, event gathering and social event on the Alice Springs um, calendar. Not not that I've ever been to one before. No, that's right. So you must. Uh, are you feeling any pressure? Uh, no, no, no pressure. Um, I've, I've been lucky enough that I've been to the Darwin Cup Carnival um, a couple of times, um, and uh, uh, obviously I've had some uh, experience in in Melbourne, which is probably the best racing carnival in the world, and the best one day of international racing in the world is the uh, is the Hong Kong Jockey Club International Day. So I have some intimate knowledge of that. So. Um, Hopefully, bringing all of that experience here to um, here to Alice Springs. Very good. Now, you mentioned before about the uh, uh, some major partnership announcements, and you, you recently announced a new major partnership there at the Alice Springs Turf Club. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, well, that, that was pretty interesting. I, um, times a little bit different here in Alice, so I, uh, sort of the terminology is I've been here two minutes, and I've already sold the racetrack. So um, I did a. Um, a major deal with uh, Ladbrokes, and Ladbrokes become the um, naming rights partner for our racetrack, which is called Pioneer Park. So it's now known as Ladbrokes Pioneer Park, um, and Ladbrokes are also the presenting partner of the Forex Gold Alice Springs Cup Carnival. You mentioned before about how important the Alice Springs Turf Club is to the community, and there's most likely a lot of tradition attached with that and a lot of sense of ownership from people in the town, how did how did adding Ladbrokes to the name of Pioneer Park go down with the locals? That was only positive, and and funnily enough, it coincides with uh, our 40th anniversary of racing here at Pioneer Park. 
Um, I have not had one negative um, connotation with us having Ladbrokes in front of it. I think the commercial reality of that and the opportunities that that, that actually presents, I think the people, the, the members uh, are very knowledgeable of that and I think they just uh, they just ask me and say, did you get a good dollar figure for it? And so if, if there's revenue coming in for the club, that's, you know, that's that, that's the major positive. Of course, and, and they probably see it as a real, for want of a better phrase, a vote of confidence in country racing in the area. Very, yeah, very much so. I think um, not to be derogatory at all, I think um, they had had some issues in regard to, to racing out here in this area. Um, there's a bit of... Um, Bit of rivalry between Alice Springs and Darwin. They they, <laughs> they feel that the um, thoroughbred racing NT may have allocated some more resources to to Darwin rather rather than Alice. Um, so yeah, so we're we're trying to punch above our weight. Now we know that lots of brands, and especially those where there is a great affiliation with the rights holder, receive hundreds of sponsorship proposals a year. And Ladbrokes, especially around racing, would no doubt have bucket loads of requests for sponsorships come across their desk. What do you think set the Alice Springs Turf Club apart in the market so that Ladbroke said, yes, we want to partner with you? Yeah, I think it was um I think it was 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 timing and exclusivity. So um UBET, which is the um the exclusive retail tote operator in both the Northern Territory and states such as uh South Australia and Queensland, for example, um, you better have just done an exclusive deal with South Australia. So now all thoroughbred races in South Australia can only be sponsored by you bet from a wagering perspective. So the opportunity to be able to tie up and so the Northern Territory don't have that restriction and the opportunity to be able to enter into a long-term deal, uh, which is inclusive of the naming rights for the racetrack, was something that was very appealing for Ladbrokes um, it possibly mirrors a deal that um, Ladbrokes had done with the Melbourne Racing Club, uh, where they sponsor um, Ladbrokes Park, which is which is Sandown in in Melbourne, and also uh, major sponsor of some of the races for the Melbourne Racing Club. And then um, I'd heard a rumour that that they are in the market. They actually um, just announced last week that they've taken over sponsorship of Mooney Valley and the iconic Cox Plate. So. Um, yeah, I feel very privileged to be part of the, if you want to call it the Ladbroke sponsorship family now, because um, we've got some great opportunities to work with both the Melbourne Racing Club and Mooney Valley and um, maybe bring um, something like the iconic Cox Plate, bring it out here to Alice Springs. Do Ladbrokes talk to you about how you guys can partner with those other properties that they sponsor, or is that just something that the rights holders get together and, and talk about the opportunities to leverage? No, 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 not at all. It's, well, I suppose we're, um, you know, we're only developing um, that at the moment. We haven't really locked anything in. But um, I was a, I was a guest in the committee room on um, Ladbroke's Blue Diamond Day at uh, Melbourne Racing Club recently. So yeah, I think uh, it, it, I think it's a great opportunity to provide those sort of opportunities. Um, I had, if you read my, if you read the press release that Ladbroke's and and I did, um, the Alice Springs Turf Club, we actually had a, a pretty Good quote from um, Peter Moody uh, in in our press release because Peter is actually an ambassador for Ladbrokes, but uh, he's a quasi ambassador for Forex Gold, and he was quoted saying that there's no better 
racing experience in Australia than having a uh, cold Forex gold can at Ladbrokes Pioneer Park, <laughs> which I thought was a pretty good, uh, pretty good bringing together of my two major partners. Yeah, so I did read that, and I did have a a little bit of a chuckle. Can you can you give us some insights into the overarching objectives that Ladbrokes are looking? Uh, to in the partnership and what are the benefits apart from the naming rights to Pioneer Park are they accessing to help achieve those objectives? Oh yeah, I suppose I'm not going to speak on Ladbroke's behalf, you can do a podcast with them but what I, I suppose where, where I really rate what they're doing in regards to sponsorship is they're forming a real partnership with with key racing participants and race clubs um, that other wagering operators haven't been doing you know they're they're all spending millions and millions of dollars on tv advertising which is you know directly aimed at the probably the 18 to 40 year old male and trying to acquire them to become a a mobile um uh punter and very crowded yeah very crowded so there's a lot of players in that space um but i think ladbrokes become very authentic right so now they can actually run um, a lot of their campaigns as such and to be able to utilise those authentic partnerships and use them to their best advantage. Like, for example, um, uh, their tagline is called Up for the Challenge and, and I was having a chat with their um, with their marketing guy in regards that we could put a something where you come out to Alice and that, that could be the challenge for their um, their customer base. Um, so I think there's a lot of, lot of great opportunities on that. Think of what they've done with Mooney Valley, like, you know, to have a exclusive, uh, you know, hospitality offering on Cox Plate Day when Winx is going to try and um, equal Kingston Town's record of winning three Cox Plates in a row. No, no, no better opportunity in the sport of horse racing. Yeah, and, and I think their tagline around up for the challenge almost, you know, creates a clean slate of, like, we can tie in lots of different things here, potentially with other partners and creating content and competitions and experiences and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, and plus also, they're a corporate bookmaker, right? So they're not a tote. So you're effectively betting against them. So I think that their 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 marketing, their branding, their messaging has been, has been pretty good. Where And as I said, it provides that, um, you know, real authenticity in regards to racing, where a lot of the other corporate bookmakers and wagering, you know, a lot of them are, are concentrating on sport now, which is certainly a growing part of the market. But but racing, um, I think the figures show that that racing still the major component for all of the wagering. As you said before, you've also had some held some commercial roles in Asia, uh, and particularly obviously in Hong Kong. How would you compare? the Asian sponsorship space to the Australian sponsorship space? Um, Australia is one of the most competitive in the world. Like We've got so many sporting franchises competing and we get so much airtime versus in Asia, you know, sport is very low down in regards to the, uh, I suppose, the awareness in the community versus Australia. That's probably the first comment that I'd make. And then secondly, in Asia, you know, the number one sports aren't the local sports, it's, you know, English Premier League mm. or NBA basketball. Um, so, yeah, very, very different in in, in that. Um, but, yeah, coming back to Australia, just, um, and I know we'll probably talk on it a little bit later, but, you know, the competitive space in, in Melbourne where you've got 
rugby league, AFL, rugby union, netball. Cricket. Uh, yeah, just... It's, Grand Prix. Uh, uh, you can safely call it the sporting capital of the world, but maybe it's the sponsorship capital of the world as well. <laughs> and, and what about the objectives that the brands are trying to achieve? Are they, are they looking for similar objectives or, or different objectives in return on investment versus you know, Asia versus Australia? Yeah, I think in um, I think in Asia, uh, there's a lot more. I suppose if you call it branding element to it, which I think here in Australia, if you talk to a sponsor about their brand in regards to um, sponsorship, they just go, oh, that, you know, they don't really rate that. Um, but the brand image in Asia is uh, is probably the first reason that they actually get involved in sponsorship, where I think we've got a lot more developed and um, I suppose more ruthless market here in Australia and, and anyone going into sponsorship is really um, is going to cut to the chase in regards to their return on investment pretty quickly. Mm, I think if we think back oh, probably more than 10, maybe 15, 20 years ago, sponsorship in Australia was all about branding and brand positioning but as you said as you know it's a competitive market people see sponsorship more as a an extension of their marketing as they should and therefore it needs to provide a return on investment if we're going to um, spend money on it then that becomes a much more pointed conversation with people would you agree with that yeah no very much so and i'd add to that that and i'm a sponsorship evangelist by the way so sponsorship's number one for me but i think now as we invest more into social media and and digital assets I think that that's where sponsorship becomes incredibly more valuable and very unique in regards to the marketing space. And I think I think Asia's probably uh, latched that latched onto that um, maybe even a little bit quicker than than Australia. Um, you know, China, for example, they 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 completely jumped over the the, the computer generation. They just went straight to mobile. So yeah. you know, doing things. I remember doing um, a pretty interesting. Um, uh, campaign with Yao Ming on SMS before Yao Ming even went into the NBA um, because that was the way you were going to, uh, you know, connect with, with those consumers in China. Um, you know, uh, platforms like WeChat, for example, uh, everything in China is, 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 is WeChat. So, you know, if you're going to invest in a, in a sponsorship portfolio in China, um, you know, how you link that in and how you're able to utilise that with a platform like WeChat is probably your number one priority now. No doubt we could discuss a list as long as my arm around the differences between somewhere like the Hong, jo- Hong Kong Jockey Club and the Alice Springs Turf Club. However, what are some of the similarities that people might not be aware of in the sponsorship space? Well, certainly in horse racing, the, 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 the key element is being able to have a, you know, sponsor a particular race and have that great shot of, you know, holding up a cup and, um, and the great thing that I think that that, that racing provides is is, uh, is the lead up and anticipation of it. I don't think there's many events now where you get a, a cross section of both male and female attending, where both the males and females, maybe the males even more so than the females now, think about what they're going to wear to an event a long way in advance. <laughs> it's um, very stressful. Think, very very stressful. So I think I think racing's got that you know, and and people sometimes put it as a negative that is you know. That racing's now just appealing to the partying and the you know the social sector and of of coming for a day at the races, but 
but once again, I I think that that's 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 extremely appealing, and that's a that's a major component of of why people want to get involved in racing, um, you know, versus um, you know going following your passion and going to your same footy team at the same stadium for seventeen times a year. Mm, I think that's an, a very interesting point. What about learning from each other? Is there something that the Asian market does really well that Australia maybe lags behind in, or vice versa? Oh no, as I said, I, I think the Australian market is uh, is much more developed than uh, uh, I think. I think, yeah, I think the learnings more go the other way of what the Australian market can do out there in Asia. And there's a lot of Aussie expatriates, expatriates out there that have got both sponsorship experience, you know, sports management, Olympics, um, you know, that have got, that have got some great roles and are doing some great work up there in Asia. You've managed to secure some major partners in some pretty tough or unique situations, and I want to ask you about three of those, those being the Hong Kong Jockey Club, the Hong Kong Sevens, and the Hong Kong International Film Festival. Let's start with the Hong Kong Film Festival, where you signed your first ever sponsor in quarter four, 2008, when the US financial system was pretty much just melting down. How did you pull that off? Because you have to be pretty ballsy to be approaching brands for sponsorship in that type of economic environment, particularly when there isn't a track history of successful sponsorship of the event that you can point to as evidence of why they should become a partner with you. Yeah, that was um, interesting that we're talking about that one first because um, so I had a relationship with City. I'd, I'd put City into horse racing sponsorship for the very first time in, in Hong Kong. Um, so I had a direct relationship with the with the main marketing guy there, and when I got given the um, the task of getting the first uh, title sponsor for the Hong Kong International Film Festival, um, I just sort of had a you know light bulb moment and I thought that City would work really well, um, especially in regards to their credit cards and the ability. I, I just found that one of the attributes of and I wasn't a film person at all, um, and I just I suppose took my sports experience and saw that. You know the people that were coming to the film festival were very passionate about film, so in similar ways to sports. So there was, you know, there was these film fanatics, and you know some of them would buy these season passes where they could go and watch all the films during the film festival. Um, but it also had elements of, um, you know, creating um, unique events. So you could be on the red carpet with Jackie Chan, for example. Um, so I just thought that that was a great fit for City, especially in regards to understanding of what they were trying to do. Um, getting their credit cards as sort of like the, um, you know, up against some, some pretty uh, tough dominant players in the Hong Kong market, um, both Hong Kong Bank, um, HSBC and Standard Chartered uh, were sort of like uh, nearly a duopoly in regards to um, banking in there. And so they were very keen as a, as a younger, aggressive uh, acquirer in, in the credit card market. So, um, and we actually... We actually delivered uh, far and above what we thought we could do because just um, you know just the, the credit card and the providing the um, uh, the privilege uh, we called it um, the, the privilege pass to be able to you know buy tickets to these films and, and experiences up front to the city customers um, yeah that just blew us away with the response that we got. The second one's a Hong Kong Jockey Club. It is impressive in terms of size and scale, but sponsorship hasn't always been part of their business model, but you helped change that, didn't you? Yep. Prior 
prior to 2003, the, um, well, uh, even backtrack there a little bit more. Prior to 1997, it was the Royal Hong Kong Jockey Club. Um, so they went through a, a, a few uh, changes there from moving from the Royal Hong Kong Jockey Club to the Hong Kong Jockey Club, but it's the most prestigious club, uh, private club in uh, in Hong Kong and, and maybe even Asia. Um, it's got the exclusive um, wagering um, license in, in Hong Kong and it bets on lotto, horse racing, and then they introduced soccer betting in 2003. Um, I actually... I actually started on the 1st of August 2003, which was the same day that the, the first soccer betting was, was um, brought on board. Um, and yeah, prior to that, the, the Hong Kong Jockey Club, I suppose, um, thought it was a bit demeaning to have a, um, a commercial sponsor in front of a title of something like the Hong Kong Derby. Really? Yep. And, and so my ex, uh, people ask me what my best sale was, and I always say, you know, that I was able to sell the, um, the board of stewards, the, this, uh, a elite group of businessmen in in Hong Kong who sat at the at the top level of the Hong Kong Jockey Club, and I um, pitched to them and sold them the idea that um, that we could have commercial sponsorship for the very first time. Hey, did you face much resistance? How did you go about it? I'm intrigued because my vision is of some you know older Chinese gentlemen who are potentially set in their ways, and if it isn't broke, we don't need to fix it. And as you said, you know, demeaning to have a name in front. You know, as a title sponsor, how did you break that down? Yeah, it was um, it was pretty interesting. Um, I suppose the main um, the main reason because of it was in two thousand and three, Hong Kong had suffered SARS. Um, so, if you remember having uh, everyone in Hong Kong having masks on, and everyone was getting out of Hong Kong, and um, I was on the board of the Hong Kong. Um, Rugby Union at the time, and we hosted the Hong Kong Sevens on what we called Ground Zero of SARS on that, that particular weekend. Uh, the government at the time didn't want us to run the event. Uh, we actually said that the event, this will be the greatest uh, sort of uh, branding for Hong Kong in difficult times, and that was proven to be the fact. Um, the Hong Kong Jockey Club, um, though, because people weren't attending events where you're out in public together, suffered a, a major decline in both attendance and turnover. And as any monopoly, they were probably um, a bit slow to, to turn that around. And I'll be forever grateful that um, a gentleman named Brian Stevenson, who was a, a newly elected board member of the um, Hong Kong Jockey Club, introduced me to uh, Ronald Arculi, who was the chairman at the time. Um, and he said, love what you do with the Hong Kong Sevens. What would you do with horse racing? Little did he know that I come from a um, very passionate horse racing family. <laughs> And um, I thought you'd never. Went, I thought you'd never ask. <laughs> yeah, it was. It was a little. It was a little bit like that. Like you know, to be a member of the Hong Kong Jockey Club, like you need about the equivalent of uh, over two hundred thousand dollars Australian just to be a member. I'm living and working up there in Hong Kong. I could only dream of being a member, and then yeah, the opportunity to talk to the chairman about. So so we actually talked about about twenty things, and um and and one thing stuck. Uh, one thing stuck, and that was uh and that was the opportunity to come in as a as a consultant and uh, see what I could do. And um, I had a very, um, very, uh, I suppose, uh, negative first contract in that if I couldn't do anything, they could kick me out pretty quickly. Um, luckily enough, I, I signed up Mercedes-Benz to sponsor the Hong Kong Derby and uh, Cathay Pacific to sponsor the Hong Kong International Races um, pretty quickly in the first year. And uh, the rest, they say, is, uh, is, is history after that. As you mentioned, you also spent some time at the 
Hong Kong Sevens and particularly in some you know, difficult uh, environments there or situations, would you, what's your view? Would you say that it's easier or harder to engage partners around events that are short, like a weekend sevens satellite stop, or is it easier? Oh, it, it, it depends. It's, um, yeah, there's a number of factors there. Obviously, Hong Kong's different because they've had that long history. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's the jewel in the crown in regards to the, to the sevens um, series. Um, but like watching the series on TV now, like they just had a wonderful weekend in Vancouver, full crowds, um, and that's a relatively new stop, versus Wellington, which used to be extremely popular. Mm. This year, for some reason, something's gone wrong there. So, um, so yeah, I think it, I think it ebbs and flows. Um, Sydney, Sydney Sevens this year, I didn't go, but my, my wife and my son went um, up from Melbourne to go to the Sydney Sevens. Um, you know, I suppose because they, they, they'd been through the Hong Kong Sevens, they knew what to, they knew what to expect, but... Sydney seems to have very much embraced it, where it was moved from 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 the Gold Coast to um, to Sydney. So, uh, yeah, I think it's 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 different in every market. Um, obviously, I suppose the the, the, the bigger issue in um, thinking of the guy I can't remember his surname, but Giles Giles is the sponsorship manager for HSBC. Um, I remember because a bit of background there, Cathay and H- and Hong Kong Bank, as it was known at the time. Um, used to be co-sponsors for the Hong Kong Sevens for many, many years. Um, and then they pulled out around the same time as 1997 with the handover. Um, and for HSBC to be come back in as a, as a big sponsor of rugby, uh, especially Sevens, and, and Giles had the vision and had the knowledge of what Hong Kong rugby was doing with driving Sevens to become an Olympic sport. So very, very smart strategy by HSBC. They're, they're basically locked into rugby and golf. And, and both of those sports have had a successful reintroduction to to the Olympics, and I think they're reaping the benefit out of that. That's a very good point. What would you say was one of your favourite activations that you helped execute while you're at the Hong Kong Sevens, and some insight about why you thought it was good? Oh, everything that I did with Heineken. <laughs> just, they do do some good activations. Just yeah, just they're they're just way and above. Just just their creativity um, and their investment into that. Um, and they want and they want freshness, so they, they they basically came up with something new every year. So so really exciting. Um, one of the great things for your listeners, if you've never been to the Hong Kong Sevens, they've got this. They they probably pioneered it in in some ways of of putting um, funny ads on on the big screen and 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 interacting with the crowd on that. Um, and that's always one of the highlights for me in a weekend in um, in, in Hong Kong and. Uh, and the Heineken ad would would always debut sort of about the week on on Hong Kong TV and and now on social media about a week before the Hong Kong Seven, and you know you can't get you can't help or feel or get excited about the event. So the ability of Heineken to sort of leverage their own brand but also promote the event as well um, that's the thing that, that 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 I loved working with them on. Yeah, I think seamless is the wrong word, but it feels very, it feels very natural, and that they are definitely their execution right across lots of uh, events that they sponsor, whether it's rugby or um, UEFA or Champions League and stuff like that. Is that their activation of those ads actually feel as though they are part of the tournament, just like the fans feel like they're just part of the tournament, and I think that marries together really well. 
Back to the Alice Springs Turf Club and noting that you've spent some time looking through the sponsorship portfolio since starting, what what are you looking to develop in the next 12 months, either from a let's make this area stronger, we already have it, let's make it stronger, or an expansion and development point of view? Yep, pretty pretty easy, and I've already um, done the first instalment of that. So I've uh, you can follow us on social media. Everything about our marketing this year has uh, hashtag Outback Races, uh, involved with the, the marketing message. So I want to I want to own the Australian Outback racing experience um, and therefore um, be aspirational for any city slicker in, in Australia that has a bucket list of, of wanting to go out and experience Outback racing. Um, I think Birdsville probably occupies that space at the present time, but they only race once a year. So I race 34 times a year. Um, obviously I've got uh, a premium uh, cup carnival event at the at the present time but I think there's great opportunities for me to do um, some other great activations around the other 33 race meetings that I've got um, so yeah that's that's probably the, the biggest thing that I'm working on and you know I, I suppose looking at the at the market and expanding the market and saying well where, where can I draw some some more customers to not only come to the races in Alice Springs, but the other part that racing has, um, that's, a, that's a major component of, of our business, which is different than a lot of other sports, is obviously the wagering. So, you know, you can watch Alice Springs Racing on, on Sky Racing Channel, wherever you are in the world. Um, and if you wager on my races, that's going to benefit um, my club in regards to the um, uh, the wagering agreement that we, that we have. So, um, yep, and you'll... Uh, when you're watching Alice Springs races, you'll you'll see as um, in the future there'll be a lot more Ladbroke signage around my racetrack. Yeah, very good. I do watch a little bit of racing on the weekend, so I'll be sure to keep an eye out. But the nice red and white should stand out pretty well anyway, so should be easy to see. Jason, apart from hashtag Outback Races, if people want to get in touch with you or find out more about the Alice Springs Turf Club, what can they do? Oh, pretty easy. Just Google Alice Springs Turf Club. We come up there on number one on the on on the search selection. So um, and yeah, if you want to um, if you want an outback racing experience, um, anyone that hasn't been to Alice Springs before, all I can say is come out here because it's um, it's it's a very unique spot. Um, I've had uh, a couple of days off. I haven't I haven't been to Uluru, Airs Rocks yet. That's about four hundred kilometres down the road. <laughs> um, but I've been to some um, some unbelievable sort of canyons and water holes. Um, in the surrounding areas of, of Alice Springs. Um, and if you go to our website and just have a look, um, we've got a, a, a mountain range called the McDonald Ranges, um, sort of just behind our racetrack. Um, and, um, oh, funnily enough, did um, you know the Sheffield Shield's going to be hosted in Alice Springs? I didn't know that. Wow, we've got everything's happening here at the moment. So the ridiculous situation where um, Victorian cricket don't have a... Uh, home ground to play a, a, a you know a, a Sheffield Shield game so they won their game up here the other day and um, on the Friday afternoon I went and um, down to the ground and I knew Cam White because he's a horse owner as well yes bit of a bit of a mad punter and I said mate if you can wrap this game up by about midday tomorrow you can go home and have a shower and my gates will open at one o'clock and come to the races so we had the Victorian Bush Rangers at the races on on Saturday and it was just fantastic they had a they had their own punters club and they were cheering and um, 
uh, and obviously they'd won the cricket as well. And um, yeah, really, uh, you know, getting Alice Springs behind them as well when they start to play the Shield final that starts on March 26th. Yeah, very good. So visiting Alice Springs is, well, visiting the Alice Springs Turf Club on a race day is a key component of going to Alice Springs. There's lots to do in and around the town. Must, I must do. Very good. Jason Cornell, CEO at Alice Springs Turf Club, thank you so much for taking us inside your sponsorship journey. Okay, thank you very much. An interesting and wide-ranging chat with Jason there and loads of different angles and examples of great sponsorship in action. So definitely something for everybody in that chat. If you want to get in contact with Jason, you can connect with him on LinkedIn or find out more at alicespringsturfclub.org.au and, of course, follow the hashtag Outback Races. And as usual, all those links are in the show notes at Sponserve.net. And if you haven't already, head along to Sponserve.net, check out our resources section. There's self-assessment sponsorship health checks, uh, an e-book that talks about aligning benefits to sponsor objectives, blogs, more podcasts, and of course, our sponsorship planner cards. If you want to connect with me, then you can do so on LinkedIn. Just search for Daniel Oyston or drop me an email at daniel at sponserve.net or on Twitter using the handle at Sponserve. And of course, as usual, you can also connect with Mark Thompson on LinkedIn or email him using mark at sponserve.net. Also, just like Mike, don't be afraid to get in contact and let us know where in the world you are listening from or suggestions for guests or topics. And I'll be sure to give you a shout out on the next episode. If you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to receive all our content straight to your inbox. Simply head to any of our blogs or podcasts at sponserve.net and fill in the subscription form and we'll deliver the content to your inbox each and every week. Until next time, I'm Daniel Oyston. Thanks for listening to Inside Sponsorship. Thanks for listening to the show. For more episodes, blogs and resources, head to sponserve.net or search for Sponserve on Facebook, Twitter or LinkedIn.